Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome back to the weekly Bunker Roundtable. I'm your host, Alex Andreu. Coming up on today's show, we will discuss the prospect of a negotiated outcome between Russia and Ukraine as Putin's army continues to bombard cities but makes little progress. Also, as sanctions hit Russia, Johnson is shifting our fossil fuel dependence from one autocratic regime to another. But energy prices continue to rise and the cost of living crisis here at home deepens. And Denmark plans to ban anyone born after 2010 from buying cigarettes. In a world forever changed by COVID-19, are we more willing than ever to be guided by the state firmly on health matters? All that and more in this week's Bunker. Welcome back to The Bunker. Let's meet today's panel. With us today, we have staff writer at The Atlantic, Yasmin Serhan. Hello, Yasmin. Hello, Alex. Yasmin, Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe returned to the UK last week. The news has been a, a very welcome, bright spot in these turbulent times. Mm. And it might seem a step forward for relations with Iran. But what tensions remain, do you think? So, yeah, I mean, it, it's amazing news. Um, and I think really long overdue. I mean, it's hard to think that she, she's been Iran longer than I've even lived in this country, which already feels like it's been forever. But, you know, I don't necessarily think that we should read into Nazanin's release as a kind of new dawn in British-Iranian relations. Um, you know, the Iranian regime only released her after Britain finally agreed to pay an outstanding debt of, I think, around 400 million pounds for a bunch of tanks that um, were ordered by Iran in the 70s, but were never actually delivered because of the Islamic Revolution. So, I mean, you know, I think obviously that the biggest question is sort of, could it, could this debt have paid sooner? Why didn't Britain pay that debt sooner? Um, Couldn't they just to- have given us a bad Yelp rating or something? Right. Like <laughs> yeah. And then according to Jeremy Hunt, who obviously was one of the many foreign ministers who tried and failed to secure Nazanin's uh, freedom, um, the British government, took a long time to decide whether that debt constituted a kind of ransom and whether that was a precedent that they really wanted to set. Um, According to the Financial Times, Britain had previously said it couldn't pay back the debt because of EU sanctions um, on Iran's defense ministry. Um, And there were disagreements apparently over how much interest should be paid. So yeah, I mean, um, and it's also worth bearing in mind too, that unfortunately, you know, Nazanin and her fellow dual national detainee, 
Anusha Ashuri, um, who like Nazanin was was also freed. They weren't. They're not the only ones that are being held in Iran currently. Mm, mm. Um, according to the Guardian, there are as many as seventeen dual nationals from across Europe and the states um, who are being held in jail in Iran. So. Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, their fate. I think is is very unclear. Um, but it's it was really really nice to see after such a really dark news cycle that we're still going. Through. Wasn't it? And and the the press conference. I thought uh, today we're recording on Monday. I thought the press conference was just stunning in the little things, you know, in in this woman being given back her voice, in seeing her without mm. a headscarf. Even even that sort of struck me as an extraordinary thing. Nazanin was taken in April 2016. Is the UK to which she returns fundamentally different as a country? Oh, my God. I mean, that was before Brexit. That was before the Brexit vote. I mean, right? when she went to Iran, most of the world thought, assumed that Britain would, would still be in the EU. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, as she noted in her press conference, it took five foreign ministers one of whom eventually became prime minister, to get her out of Iran. And, you know, in that time, Britain not only left the European Union, which took a long time, as we all remember, but it also is overcame and is still overcoming the biggest global public health crisis that we've experienced and hopefully the only one we'll experience in our lifetimes. Uh, you know, she, she returns um, to a Britain that, you know, is, is still trying to sort of figure out who it is you know, relative to Europe and the United States. I mean, she missed the whole Donald Trump presidency, which frankly she didn't yeah. miss much, but... Um, <laughs> Lucky her. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> silver linings. <laughs> um, she, she missed, yeah, she missed so, you know, yeah, she fundamentally, I mean, I cannot imagine what it would be like to to have had this image of 2016 Britain in your mind and to kind of come back and catch up on everything that's happened since. Um, to the extent that I'm sure she followed, you know, I think she obviously more than most would be really intent on following the politics in the UK as it relates to her case and, you know, how the United States and and, and Europe potentially also um, affected relations with Iran and how that affected her as a consequence. So no doubt she knew she was coming back to somewhere different, but I imagine it will take some time. Yes. I mean, no, no one should have to miss six years, but if you have to miss six years, the last six are <laughs> not terrible. bad ones yeah. to miss. <laughs> Um, we also welcome, like you may have heard her, she can't hold her tongue. Um, we welcome back former Labour advisor and Times Radio host, Aisha Hazarika. Hello, Aisha. Hello, hello. Aisha, um, Boris Johnson likened the Ukrainian resistance with a vote for Brexit in a speech on Saturday. The chorus of disapproval has included some quite unexpected names, um, do you think it was a miscalculation or was it just smart political strategy? I just think it's Boris Johnson being a complete idiot, to be honest. I, I don't I don't think it was a strategy. I mean, I I saw an interesting briefing from people close to him saying that apparently even he has now looked back and gone, oh, that was a bit of a stupid thing to say and has said it looked better written down than it did said out loud. It was just an incredibly crass and actually very stupid thing to see. I mean, I find myself in the extraordinary position of retweeting Julia Hartley Brewer on this. <laughs> I thought, my COVID is so bad, I'm retweeting Julia. That is how bad things have got. Um, but then I had another conversation just today because I've been really, really sick with, with COVID. So I've been sort of out of the loop really for the last sort of week or so. But I caught up with somebody today who, his, his politics could not be more different 
to mine. He was a, a staunch Brexiteer. He was a staunch, you know, supporter of Boris Johnson. And even he said to me today that this was just beyond idiotic. And the, the crazy thing about Boris Johnson is he's actually had quite a good war to, to to use that horrible you know phrase in many ways yeah. this um conflict has you know moved the focus away from from party gates moved the focus away from the cost of living crisis and many people in ukraine I have ukrainian friends that actually think boris johnson has you know done a good job on this so why on earth does he make such a completely sort of a moronic comment and and the fact that even staunch brexiteers are saying this is completely ridiculous. When you are having newborn babies murdered, to say that this is like Brexit is just so pathetic. It's beyond belief. Yes, a lot of defenders are, are now saying the, the quote was misunderstood and it didn't mean that at all. Let me read it for our listeners in full. It goes like this. It's the instinct of the people of this country, like the people of Ukraine, to choose freedom every time. When the British people voted for Brexit in such large numbers, it was because they wanted to be free. Um, I don't think it's particularly ambiguous. And also, I think that I think that the, the, the mad thing is this in many ways, the Ukrainian conflict has 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 made relations better between Britain and the EU. It has made, you know, ironically, us see the benefits of of staying close to our European neighbours. And actually, you know, Boris Johnson, despite us not liking him in many ways, he's actually done okay on this. I mean, lots of issues over the refugee situation, yes. So, so idiotic and big consequences because, of course, he hasn't been invited to this big meeting um, in, in Europe. And I think he probably would have been invited if he hadn't made those stupid comments. Our guest today is Dr. Mark Berenson, Senior Lecturer at the Russia Institute in King's College, London. Welcome to the bunker, Mark. Hi, hope you are well. We are very well. Um, Mark, you lived in Kiev uh, when you worked for Freedom House's Law in Action programme. How does it feel seeing bombs rain down on a place that you used to call home? It's horrifying. This is a wonderful country, and it's a really nice place to visit. In fact, I was hoping to to trek about and take a vacation there later this summer before all of this happened. Um, at the same time, this is a country that has experienced probably for, far more suffering and tragedy than most ordinary countries in the world. Besides the two world wars, it had the famine imposed by Stalin, purges uh, under Stalin's time, the Holocaust by bullets in which more Jews were killed by uh, the Holocaust, then we were killed at Auschwitz, um, and Chernobyl, and the fall of the Soviet Union, and then, of course, the 2014 war that still continues onwards um, with Russia. It, it, this is a people that are very tolerant, perhaps because they've suffered an awful lot, and they're wonderful um, to visit, and they should be part of the European family. Mark, has it become tricky introducing yourself as working for the Russia Institute? Do you overcompensate and, and rush to provide additional information? I usually go into an explanation as to how uh, <laughs> it was that uh, King's uh, started these global affairs and global uh, studies institutes. But it's really a hallmark to how the world was divided up according to um, mm. the regions. And all of I my mean, colleagues, including myself, we all study not just Russia, but Ukraine and other parts of the former Soviet Union. Of course. I mean, I am partly pulling your leg, but partly there's a serious point there. Is there a danger that a generalized Russophobia might be legitimized and, and we all start to define an entire country and its people by the actions of its current 
regime. I do think there's a fear that that Russians could become ostracized. Um, there are a lot of Russians who have moved on from the Russian Federation and from Putin's Russia and have been living quite successfully contributing to our societies here in the West, and we shouldn't uh, distance ourselves from them. At the same time, one, you know, looking at Russia from the outside, one wants to sort of have an impact as to how decisions are made and, and try to figure out what's really going on on the ground, such that Russia itself could have a better future than the one it has in store for it at the moment. Mm. Well, we'll be picking Mark's big, beautiful brain throughout the program. As we enter the fifth week of a war that was meant to be over within days, an increasingly desperate Russia is beginning to shell Odessa from its naval ships. An estimated 90% of buildings are damaged or destroyed in Mariupol, which, on a personal note, has a huge Greek expatriate population, as the strategy seems to have shifted to starving its 300,000 remaining residents. Meanwhile, the convoy outside Kiev is moving at a snail's pace and the city has not been encircled still. There are reports that not only the Russian army is running out of fuel, ammunition and food, but Russian reserves are low with talk of factories being commandeered. Our own Ministry of Defence in its latest intelligence report says it is likely Russia will continue to use its heavy firepower to support assaults on urban areas as it looks to limit its own already considerable losses at the cost of further civilian casualties. News from the negotiations, however, appear to be more hopeful. Turkey says that despite the standoff, the two countries are converging on aspects of a peace deal. Mark, are there genuine signs of a potential peace deal, or is it the case that neither side wants to be accused of having walked away? Well, at the moment, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has uh, renewed his calls for peace talks with Putin. And Putin at the moment does not seem to be engaging with this. If there is going to be talks, some of the language that Putin has used and his position of viewing his views and attitudes towards Ukraine are going to have to be peeled away a bit in order to look at the more practical aspects of uh, whether Ukraine should be neutral. And if so, how in the world could neutrality be guaranteed for Ukraine and what borders of an independent sovereign Ukraine capable of defending itself should be imposed, given the fact that we've seen the borders move quite a bit, not just in the last few weeks, but over the last uh, several years. What sort of shape do you think such a deal might eventually take? I mean, I'm asking you to gaze at tea leaves now. I understand that. But each side has certain red lines, and some of them will have to shift for a, a negotiated settlement to happen. So where do you think this is likely to land? Well, certainly going back to the way the borders were before February 24th of this year when Russia reinvaded Ukraine, um, Russia um, had control over uh, and had annexed the Crimea Peninsula as well as had part of the two Donbas uh, provinces of Ukraine in allegiance with it. It was supporting the... Uh, uh, rebels that were in the uh, Donetsk and Luhansk uh, uh, republics. It could be, be a question of would Ukraine accept that? But since then, of course, Russia's taken all of the Donbass and even more territory, connecting a land bridge between the Donbass and Crimea, which 
is very desirable in terms of providing water for Crimea and other things, but whether Ukraine could live with that. Most of the Ukrainians who have been in the way in the last three, four weeks, if not all of them, have no desire to be ruled by Russia. And so that would be a provide for an additional problem, even if there were territory that had been taken by Russia in the last few weeks. Um, how could Russia rule that land when the Ukrainians there, Ukrainian nationals, as I, I, I would put it, don't want to be ruled by Russia? And Ukrainians as well, as I explained in, in sort of detail in my own book, Taxes and Trust, Ukrainians have a very different relationship to authority than Russians do. And this makes would make it very difficult for Russians to have any control over um, Ukrainians that are not firmly in line with Russia. Mm, yes, I was very interested in your work in the book because uh, in my previous life, let's say, I used to work for a competition compliance authority here in the UK. And one of my jobs was to go out to places like Poland and teach them competition compliance before they joined um, the European Union. And I remember very well how different the attitudes of a formerly communist state were when you explain to them, well, that, you know, well, if, uh, if one steel manufacturer doesn't have enough orders, then it, it, it should close and strengthen the remaining steel manufacturers. And they just could not understand that. They kept telling me, but what about the jobs? Moving forward sort of 20, 25 years onwards, there seem to be parts of that region that have fully joined the West and parts of that re region, like Ukraine, which appear to have been left slightly behind as a sort of buffer zone for Russia's aggression. What, what, how do we square that circle? Part of it is the way the West provided aid and support to the region. European Union had two separate foreign aid programs, one for Central and Eastern Europe and the other for the former Soviet Union, such that there was very little connection between Ukrainians and Poles under EU programs in the 1990s and early 2000s because the EU just made a sort of drew a line in the sand and, mm. and treated them differently. One could question whether that was sort of appropriate or not. But generally speaking, there was a lot more of an effort on the part of Poles to join Europe, to rejoin Europe, I should say, when um, uh, I think your work uh, that you did in the 1990s was by and large successful because Poles became sort of trusting of the state. They had mm. a government that was of, by, and for Poles for the first time in generations. And even at the end of the 1990s, Poles 90% of the time said that the tax administration was their most trusted government organization which doesn't seem to be the case in most countries these days. Mm -hmm. So, and meanwhile, Ukraine did not move forward with its own reforms. Unfortunately, it was not ready for reform. The Soviet collapse took most of the public as well as the elites by surprise. Remember as well that unlike Poland and Russia, which had their own capitals retained, Kiev became a new capital of a new state, and that required building a new elite and new experts on the mm, ground mm. as well. Aisha, the general narrative in Western media is that this has gone pretty badly for Putin. Do you think that is the case, or is that what we want to believe? Is that a part of our gentle 
propaganda in a way? I think there is definitely uh, some optimism bias that we need to be mindful of. And, and that's very human because this is an incredible narrative, the way this has played out. And, and Zelensky himself is such an exceptional leader. I mean, we just you know compare his amazing oratory skills and his ability to get everything pitch perfect to every different audience compared to, for example, our own prime minister. So we we definitely are rooting for Ukraine. And and to be absolutely fair, any military expert will see and confirm that the Ukrainian army has overperformed and the Russian army has underperformed. But I do think we have to be mindful of the fact that, you know, like the the odds don't look great for for Ukraine. And I mean, I, I hope that I am wrong on this. But I feel that we are in this very protracted situation, which is we're not going to have a, a no-fly zone. NATO has made it very, very clear that it's not going to get involved. The Russian army is just much bigger. It has much more capacity. Yes, it hasn't been particularly good. Uh, the will of the fighters and the soldiers is not there compared to this steely resolve of the Ukrainians. My anxiety is that we are waiting for something really, really terrible and evil and wicked that is going to come even worse than what we've seen from the Russians in in some form of, of chemical weapon or something like that. Liz Truss suggested that talk of a deal could be a smokescreen for Putin to be able to regroup his troops, basically, and and resupply them. Should any negotiation be approached with scepticism? Or is that actually quite unhelpful? I actually have some sympathy for, for what Liz Truss said. And when these talks have been happening, I mean, obviously, one wants to hope for the the best. But I think we do have to prepare for the worst. I mean, I think psychologically, these talks are quite interesting, because they they do buy both sides some time. But I think psychologically, from the Russian point of view, I think it's more advantageous from the Russians to to have these peace talks, because their demands have not changed. They are still being very, very firm in terms of what they want from, from Ukraine. And I do wonder if part of these peace talks are to sort of psychologically grind down Zelensky team because psychologically they're projecting this very strong message it's like which we are going to fight to the bitter end we're not you know moving on our red lines yeah yeah. you know i'm prepared to sort of die on my soil defending it and then to have to have the mental gear change to go into these peace talks which i don't think are happening in good faith i think that Mm. is probably more psychologically difficult for, for, for for the ukrainians um yeah because they don't feel that they have to, they should concede anything because they don't feel they have done anything wrong. They were a sort of sovereign nation going about their business and suddenly they've had this invasion. So it's quite hard for them to think, well, what could we give up? What what deal could we cut? Yeah, yeah. No, I understand completely what you mean. Um Yasmin, last week um Russian TV employee Marina Vsyanikova um, interrupted a, a, a live broadcast with an astonishingly brave protest, holding up a, a sign saying no to war, they're lying to you here. How warped is the news that the Russian public is exposed to? Has the, has the internet age made a dent in that, do you think? Well, 
I think if, if you're a young Russian, you probably get a lot of your news from social media um, or whatever is left of it anyway, because I think as, as we all probably have, have seen over the last few weeks, a lot of the major social media platforms are now blocked in Russia. But, but if you're part of the older generation, you actually probably get most of your news from television, which is apart from those six seconds um, when, um, as you mentioned, that very, very brave Russian television, state television employee held up that sign. It's completely controlled by the state. And and to watch some of those broadcasts, as my colleague um, Olga Khazan recently did, she has a great piece about it on The Atlantic, um, mm-hmm. you really get a sneak peek um, into what is a carefully crafted echo chamber by the Kremlin, one in which you know Russia is the victim, the Ukrainian government is controlled by Nazis, and the war in Ukraine doesn't exist. It's it's worth saying, of course, that the media sphere in Russia was already pretty tightly controlled even before the war. Um, I think Putin has um, overseen a, a pretty systemic crackdown on, on Russian media. We saw, but we've really, I think, in the last few weeks seen that taken to another level, one that has claimed, I think, two of the country's last independent news broadcasters, TV Rain and Echo of Moscow. Um, And thanks to the Kremlin's new censorship laws, most foreign media outlets have been forced out of the country um, or have, you know, removed bylines from their pieces. So, um, Mm. so as the people who work for them. But actually, this doesn't mean that Western outlets are abandoning their Russian audience. I have a piece out this week looking at how a number of outlets like Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, are trying to exploit the gaps in this new digital iron curtain um, using new technologies. So, I mean, I guess the, the, the simplest answer to your question is that it's very controlled and it's gotten even smaller. But there still are some ways for ordinary Russians to you know, see a bit of what's happening in the outside world and to get a bit of a different perspective. But for the vast majority of Russians, that's not the case. Yeah, there are basically chinks in the armor that just wouldn't be wouldn't have been there 40, 50 years ago. Exactly. Um, Because we are seeing some acts of dissent. We are seeing some demonstrations, some signs of displeasure. Putin holding his own pro-war uh, rally on Friday strikes me actually as a as a sign of weakness rather than strength. There's no doubt that internationally the Kremlin has lost the information battle comprehensively. But is there a danger it could lose it domestically too, especially as, um, you, you know, news of soldiers having been killed, come in as injured people go back home? They know the story on the ground. And it's it's many thousands of people to control that flow of information of people coming back from the actual region. What do you think? Mm. Yeah, there's definitely a danger. Otherwise, I don't think we would be seeing this extreme response from the Kremlin right now. I mean, you mentioned having the rally really tightening the screws in terms of what can be said and by whom. Um, you know, this attempt at complete information control is not something that you do when you feel secure in your position. Um, and I think blocking the world's social media platforms, threatening jur- journalists with 15 years in prison for calling a war a war, even going as far as Putin did the other day to to sort of say that there, there are kind of traitors in society that need to be pushed out, I, I think is, is is kind of indicative of, of the threat that he feels to himself and to his position. 
no one that I've spoken to in my own reporting on this seems to believe that um, Putin will successfully be able to cut off Russia completely from, you know, the outside world and from the internet. I mean, society these days doesn't really function um, that way. And as I mentioned, there are workarounds, but, you know, I think Putin is going to try his hardest to do as the Soviets did really try to jam those signals um, as much as he can. And, and I think that the greatest advantage that he has is that, you know, as much as many as I think 62% of the country relies on state run television as their primary source of news. Mm. Mark, what does an outcome other than an outright victory, so whether it's a negotiated settlement, whether it's a partial victory that takes some of the regions, anything other than the complete crushing of Ukraine at this stage? How does that affect Putin's ability to govern Russia going forward? Is he quite fatally compromised by all this? I don't know if he's fatally compromised. I think the, the horrific thing about the media in the Russian Federation today isn't just that it's excluding out independent sources or preventing certain news stories from coming on board. It is feeding a line of sort of argumentation that most Russians have been watching and viewing for years on Channel One, on the main stations, and they believe it. They believe that Russia is the victim in this event that's going on in Ukraine. They believe it's just an incursion on the part of sort of a peacekeeping effort on the part of Russia in the Donbass region. And any sort of news to the contrary is not something they can easily uh, acknowledge. This has led to dissonance effects between families where one member is on one side of the Russian border and another's um, someplace else. Um, even re- people who have relatives in Russia who are in Ukraine telling them, explaining to them what's going on, their relatives don't believe them. And this is part of the culture that has developed because of this long-term control over the media. So it's not just about excluding certain um, stories. Moreover, in the long run, Putin may be able to survive to some extent without great popular support or without the level of popular support that he has had up until now, as long as um, there are buyers for oil and gas around the world, and he is able to gain finances to be able to support a very coercive state, a Stalinist state, if you will, in which everyone in the population more or less is either going to leave the country, and over a quarter of a million Russians have already left in the last three, four weeks, or they're going to be very sort of dig down low and and, Mm, um, mm. react out of fear. Russians have never had a period of economic growth that's coincided with democracy. And if some growth comes back as a result of being able to sell fossil fuels in the short to medium term, then Putin may have enough finances to fund his regime. Mm. One thing that is scarcely talked about is Russia's huge depopulation problem. I mean, this is one of the most sparsely populated countries in the world with nine residents per square kilometer. If you look at the Asian portion of Russia alone, it is even worse. Russia needs a replacement birth rate of 2.1. That's just to tread water. And its birth rate is 1.5 and declining. Some believe that this demographic crisis is a big factor in Russian aggression. Can that conundrum be solved? I don't know if it can in terms of ethnic Russians 
increasing their their population um, over the medium to long run. Certainly, there has been significant population growth in the Muslim republics of the North Caucasus area. And to some extent, that is not to the liking of uh, ethnic Russians within Russia. Russia is actually a very multicultural, multi-religious nation with people of all faiths. Um, as an illustration, I went to three republics um, one summer, and one was majority Muslim, another was majority shamanist, and then third was um, majority Buddhist. They're all quite different and distinct from each other. And yet, you know, somehow the nationalism that has been sort of put together by Putin over the last 22 years excludes this multinational facet or character of the country and is focused solely on what would we call Ruski nationalism, Russian national, ethnic Russian nationalism. And that's not something that can be sustained as population changes uh, sort of take place. In that respect, this war has completely backfired because what he has instead is, you know, young men dying before they've had a chance to have a family. What he has is Russians fleeing Russia. What he has is, uh, uh, you know, population that he wanted to absorb, I guess, uh, saying we're having none of it. The situation has become, in that respect, even more desperate. What I fear the most is that over the next 10 years, the world is going to get away from fossil fuels. We're going to have green energy to source our um, cities and factories and so forth. At that time, the need for Russia, what Russia has, its oil and gas, is going to be even less. Moreover, if Russia is going to sustain sanctions from the West throughout the coming years, it won't have foreign investment. It won't be able to buy the technology and the resources to fund and build other sectors of its economy. And Russia will not modernize. We could have a situation 10 years from now in which Russia has failed to modernize. The population has a lot of grievances, just like Putin did when the cult, when the Soviet Union collapsed. And at the same time, uh, still will have its nuclear and other types of weapons at its disposal. Despite its size and population, Russia's economy is of a relatively modest size, smaller than, say, Italy or Canada by GDP. Its invasion of the Ukraine, however, is affecting the global economy disproportionately because the supply of a number of key commodities like fuel or wheat has been disrupted, both by the war and by the sanctions imposed on Russia because of the war. In some ways, this is a reassuring sign that the measures are having an impact and that they go way beyond the tokenistic sanction regimes of the past. In other ways, especially two years into the COVID-19 crisis, while the world economy is trying to recover, they are a source of concern because shortages and inflation could really stunt growth. Mark, we know that the economic hardship resulting from the sanctions will be held up as an example of the West's arrogance and vindictiveness within Russia. But how do you think the more cultural sanctions will play out? Losing famous brands that you're used to seeing you know, in, in, in city streets and Russian cultural icons and sports teams being shunned. Is there a tipping point when the Russian people might say, this guy's returning us to the 70s. There is a, a, a you know, concern for Putin that he could return uh, 
the country to the Brezhnev era in which um, economy was not doing very well and there was not much on offer at the shops. But at the same point, it depends upon the rhetoric that's coming from the media and also what Russians choose themselves to believe. If they believe this is something that was caused by something Putin did, uh, then of course um, Putin will have, have their backing. If they believe it's because the rest of the world is against Russia and Russians and they don't hear the full story as to what's gone on, then uh, they would be uh, inclined to sort of revive a sense of Russian nationalism. In many ways, this is uh, sort of similar to the fact that after the Cold War ended, there wasn't sort of this sort of reaccounting for Stalin's crimes that many felt that Russia should have engaged in in order to sort of purge itself of its violent coercive past. Hmm. Do, do you think the West was prepared for the financial pain of these sanctions? I mean, obviously, I know the bean counters will have foreseen them, but do you think people understood that such a small economy can actually influence the health of the global economy to such a, a disproportionate extent? And should we do something going forward to build resilience so that we do not depend entirely on this autocratic regime or that autocratic regime going forward? There will be a call for greater resilience in sourcing our energy and sourcing our, our wheat. As you rightly said, both Russia and Ukraine are main exporters of wheat. Um, and But it, on the other hand, I frankly was surprised myself by the reaction, not just from the, the government to impose sanctions upon Russia in the days after the invasion began, but also the number of corporate organizations and, and corporations that chose to withdraw from Russia on their own because they felt as if that was damaging their brand to be seen to be operating within Russia itself. And the test, so the proof will be in the pudding as energy costs rise. We're thankfully moving closer towards the summer um, every day, arrival mm -hmm. of spring today. We don't know how high oil is going to go and how much that's going to tax people in the West whether it's refueling their tanks or whether it's simply heating their homes. Hmm. Yasmine, what do you make of the openness and generosity of countries which have been for some years now on the vanguard of arguing for a fortress Europe approach on refugees from other conflicts? Do we have to just bite the bullet and accept that there are issues of race and religion that shape uh, public opinion when it comes to refugees. And, you know, instead of treating them as sort of generic issues, address the root causes. I mean, it don't get me wrong, it's been really heartwarming to see countries like, you know, Poland or Hungary, which, you know, haven't traditionally been all that hospitable to refugees, um, you know, open their doors in the way that they have. Um, but, you know, the double standard is quite clear. These are, you know, in, in the eyes of these countries, perhaps, and, and, you know, perhaps Europe more broadly, certainly some leaders have kind of said this, and we've heard, unfortunately, a lot of this rhetoric and kind of the media coverage of this as well. You know, these are, quote, unquote, acceptable refugees. You know, they're, mm. they're, they're they're more familiar. They come from countries that are closer in some respects. I'm thinking particularly of Hungary. They may share the same faith. 
there's certainly, we, we know this full well from 2015 and onward, and, and even with Afghan refugees, that there is a tendency to look at refugees coming from, um, you know, the, the Middle East and elsewhere as, as sort of outsiders who, who compose a strain on these countries. So, no, I think it's worth, you know, this has shown, on the one hand, it has been very promising, and I think very nice to see that Europe actually does have the capacity um, to, to mm. be quite welcoming to refugees. Um, one can only hope, though, that the next time, if and when there is another refugee crisis and say they're coming from other far-flung parts of the world, that these countries will then be reminded of how they treated Ukrainian refugees. And also understand that, you know, refugees, they're, they're not coming because they want to. This isn't some holiday. They're fleeing their homes. They're, they want to go back, I would imagine. My whole family were twice made refugees, grandparents from Palestine, parents from Kuwait during the Gulf War. I mean, they, my, my parents were gutted to leave Kuwait. They had a wonderful life. I mean, they're touch wood, have a really wonderful life now in the United States. I'd shudder to think how they would be treated if, if they were made refugees today in, in sort of the, the climate that we have. Meanwhile, Johnson has to go cap in hand to Saudi Arabia to ease um, pressure on um, fuel prices. I mean, we all want our governments to be ethical. We also want a high standard of living at a low price. Are those two demands basically antithetical? Do we need to be more honest about the fact that ethics have a cost? Yeah, I mean, ethics don't pay the bills. Um, and unfortunately, around the world, people are seeing gas prices soar because of this crisis. And governments are are understandably going to be very sensitive to that. And they, they have to answer to that. But, you know, I think it's worth remembering that, you know, it's not like Britain and Saudi Arabia didn't already have a close relationship. There's yeah, an investment relationship. True. There's a defense intelligence relationship. Um, you know, Saudi Arabia is, is the biggest crude oil exporter in the world. So really, it's about picking po your poison. And unfortunately, for the moment, even despite the fact that Saudi Arabia just executed more than 80 people. 81 in one weekend. And then they executed another three on the day of Johnson's visit. Exactly. Which struck me as a sort of show of strength. Really. Impunity, I, I, the, yeah. I mean, the reason I'm bringing it up, Yasmin, is because I was really struck. I, I saw a, an interview with Jeremy Hunt, which was basically in two parts, okay? So in the first part, he was sagely giving his view on where we went wrong with Putin. He was saying that the reaction to Putin should have been much, much stronger when he first, let's say, poisoned Litvinenko. If the reaction from the West had been much stronger then, then we wouldn't have conditioned him to believe that he can get away with this shit. And then the second part was about Johnson's visit to, to, um, to the Saudis. And he was making precisely the same excuses for bin Salman, who, you know, who ordered the assassination of, of Jamal Khashoggi. And it's almost like you're, you're watching it in real time as we make the same mistake again and groom the next autocrat to believe that there are no consequences for these actions. I mean, how, what do we do? How do we get out of this circle to all the panel, if you have any ideas? I think it's the it's the question of our age, really, and I think that the this whole Ukrainian conflict has brought that question into sharp focus. I mean, the reason why we didn't really do very much after Putin is because, let's be honest, a lot of our cabinet ministers were being auctioned off to have tennis matches with the wives and the mistresses of 
oligarchs in this country. And I think, you know, we've just had this complete blind spot about money. And I think the the horrible reality is, is that, and you know, it's not just this country, but we are talking about this country. We have got to a stage where it's almost like we've made, we've put everything up for sale to anybody without any question about whether they're a fit and proper person and, and whether their money aligns with the values of this country. I mean, I couldn't believe that in the middle of, of you know, as, you know, we had all the thing about, you know, Chelsea football club. And then we seem to have forgotten that Newcastle has just been bought by the Saudis as well. And I just feel like when you really look at the pillars of British society and business and the economy and politics and the media, I mean, there is so much foreign money that we have welcomed in here with no questions and no strings attached. And I'm afraid the chickens are, are coming home to roost. And it feels like it's quite late to do anything about it. Hmm. Mark, looking forward to maybe a possible reconstruction of Ukraine, some people are talking about a sort of Marshall Plan. But can it can a true Marshall Plan exist before countries like Ukraine, like Ukraine are admitted into NATO, what I'm what I'm trying to get at is: is there a point rebuilding Ukraine if we then allow the possibility of it being flattened again and again? One of the sort of tragedies of perhaps the West's good intentions towards countries like Ukraine that find themselves between the EU and Russia is that we did very well in integrating them politically, socially, culturally with the West, with the world. But we didn't provide them with a canopy of security on top of that. And it was felt that maybe wishful thinking, Putin wasn't that serious in his letter last summer, for example, as to um, Ukraine not being a country. And so we didn't sort of put all the pieces together. I think now the the West is going to be having to help you build, rebuild Ukraine, in part because the West is not there now fighting the war with Ukraine. And I think the West will recognize that they have an obligation to do that. Um, they certainly provided a lot of aid for other um, EU countries on the eastern portion, um, uh, Poland, Hungary, and, and the Baltics, and so forth. And, and, and it will be now Ukraine's time, although Ukraine has gotten some funding in the past. Um and up until now. Um, I think that in many ways, it may make sense for Ukraine to become part of the EU before it becomes part of NATO. But going back to the earlier discussion we had on providing for security and neutrality for Ukraine, I'm not really clear on how neutrality could be guaranteed by outside powers in a way that would sort of involve the US or other countries to guarantee the borders between Ukraine and Russia. The government of Denmark announced this week that it is considering banning cigarette sales to anyone born after 2010, following similar legislation in New Zealand. There is no doubt that COVID-19 has changed the world at a fundamental level in respect of how paternalistic state action on health matters is received by citizens. Are we going to see more prescriptive health measures in the near future? Um, Yasmin, are you a fan of proactive health approaches or should it be personal choice? 
So when I first saw this news, it kind of reminded me of how certain Muslim majority countries ban the sale of alcohol. And and the way I think of that is like, okay, yes, these things aren't necessarily all that good for you. But I don't necessarily think that means that it's the government's place to tell you what you can and can't buy. Um, obviously, I, you know, as a non-smoker, see the value of a pint to be considerably higher than that of a cigarette. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> I mean, I, I think I fall more on the libertarian side of things on this and that, you know, I don't really, I mean, I don't know very many, maybe more though, since, since I moved to the UK and, and just have, knowing more people in continental Europe, I feel like the number of people I know who smoke is minute. And I feel like that mm. number is just going to naturally go down on its own. I don't necessarily you, know that you have to outlaw it for it. Do to, you think the fact that, do you think the fact that smoking is an established risk to innocence around you makes it an exceptional case though? I mean, certainly, but I think that's what, you know, all the bans on like indoor smoking, for example, are for, right? You know, we've we've made it quite, oh, I mean, as, as a non-smoker, I feel like we have tried to, like society has kind of made it onerous for smokers to kind of, you know, go out and say, go to a restaurant, go to a pub. And so, you know, in that way, I don't really, I, I feel like I'm quite lucky that I don't really feel like I'm exposed to smoke that much. And if it really bothered me, I'd probably just leave no, that's cool. There, there isn't a right or wrong answer to this. I don't think. But my concern then is that, like, suddenly banning it is going to make it cool, and then you're going to have a bunch of like kids born after 2010, like buying cigarettes like under the <laughs> table. Like, I don't I mean what, my siblings are. Were both um, well, they were born a little. They were both late 2000 babies. They're they're quite younger than me, and I obviously would be horrified if they smoked. But I also know that they're just never going to do that because they know full well, both from having family members who smoke, that like it smells terrible and it's terrible for you. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I just think people like are smart enough to make that choice. You could also, I mean, I hate to be the what about us type person, but like you could argue that alcohol is also very dangerous for society <laughs> because people drunk drive and things. But, you know, we don't ban that, do we? Mark, uh, smoking aside, as a matter of principle, is it fair to ban something for young people? that older people are freely able to partake in? I think it depends upon what are the costs of doing so. And certainly there are costs uh, for society, there are costs in terms of paying for the healthcare system. I mean, my own sort of personal family experience has led me to the model, motto, smoke only if no one loves you, because smoking has an effect on families uh, like no other and causes just a lot of pain in the, uh, later on that I, mm. why would anybody engage in such a selfish habit? But uh, I think that certainly if the costs were the same between young and old per se, then that may be, uh, uh, could be allocated or, or covered differently. That may be something to consider. It seems to me that there is one construction of the fallout from COVID that is a sort of crisis of capitalism like the invisible hand of the free market was just not sufficiently fast, responsive or firm to deal with um, this big thing. And I just wonder if there is a more general challenge to the small state orthodoxy as we come out of the pandemic. 
I think you put the the nail on the head, so to speak. We really have been seeing, and actually not just with COVID, you could go back with the transition from communism to market economy and uh, from the communist to a democratic states and Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union. Always the question, how much state control should we be allowing for and how much um, should we be giving to the, the run of the marketplace, if you will? This is a debate that falls on quite frankly, on every single issue, be it health, be it um, regime change, be it every type of government program, um, how much is too much and how much then as a residual give to the marketplace to decide what is allowed. Going back to the example of smoking, I remember vividly that in Russia and Ukraine and all these countries in the 1990s, a lot of the uh, Western tobacco firms came over and just handed out packs of cigarettes as if they were candy to underage kids. And that was the way in which the state, you know, was taking a step back and allowing the marketplace to run things. Yeah. Aisha, seeing as we've mentioned the dreaded C word, COVID cases and hospitalizations are on the rise again. I know you've just been through a bout of it. It seems Johnson got COVID about as done as he did Brexit. Has the government engineered a situation where the public will just never accept restrictions, regardless of numbers now? Well, I mean, I think the public themselves were probably at the end of their stroke hour tether with um, restrictions. But I think the fact that the government has very triumphantly declared victory on COVID and said it's over is psychologically really difficult for people because if there is a new variant, if cases do go up to the point where hospitals get overwhelmed again, if they do need to um, change public health messaging, they're going to find that really, really hard to do um, because they've said it's all over and we have to learn to live with it. And it's just a bit like a cold. Well, I've just had it and I was absolutely wiped out for eight days. I mean, I was so ill, I couldn't even tweet. Like, that is how ill I was. <laughs> that is ill. I, For that you, is ill, that right? is ill. <laughs> exactly. I wasn't even getting into fights with people on Twitter. Like, that is how sick <laughs> I was, basically. So, you know, this thing is still very real. And I just think, yes, we want to get on with our lives. All of us do. You know, we're all human beings. You know, you know what is the point of living if we're just hiding sort of inside? But there's some simple measures which I, you know, having just been really ill myself, I can't believe the government has, has, you know, mask wearing is a really simple thing that could still be in place. But the big one for me, which I cannot believe, is the ending of free testing. Because the government wants to say to people, self-responsibility, look, do the right thing, be responsible for your own health. And if you get ill, stay inside. And I think that's a good message. But then why take away the very tool by which you can make that happen, which is free testing? With the cost of living going up, people are not going to spend money on testing yeah. kits, particularly people who are low paid. So I wish it was over. But having just been floored for, for eight days, I, I think, you know, news of COVID's death is, is somewhat what exaggerated. Mm. It's amazing how much more resistant real walls are to little diggers uh, as opposed to foam blocks isn't it um now i have something fun for the whole of the whole panel if you could ban something to younger generations what would it be aisha 
Okay, I've got two things. Number one is the perm. <laughs> the perm. <laughs> the perm. <laughs> Don't ever do it. Like it will never ever work out well for you. It will never just look like a gentle curl. That is never going to happen. It's never going to be a beachy wave. It's going to be a spiral crispy monstrosity. That is the first thing. That's the first thing. The second thing is, and this is my strong advice to anyone young that is listening, do not over pluck your eyebrows because you will live to regret it. When you're a perimenopausal woman like me and you're desperate to have like full <laughs> eyebrows because they are very youthful, you will regret all that plucking you did in your early <laughs> Yes, yes, the look comes and goes. Um, Yasmin, how about you? I kind of wish I chose something more fun now, but going back to my siblings, I really like dread the day they join social media because... It can be wonderful, but it can also be really mean and harmful. So, if so I you would like, ban social media for uh, people younger than you? Well, maybe just for my siblings. Because that's the thing. I love TikTok. <laughs> and I love all the content on TikTok. And I know that's being made predominantly by people probably born after the, the, the late 2000s. So, yeah. Okay. So social media for Yasmin, controversial. <laughs> Mark, what about you? Uh, perhaps the word like. Oh, very good. Oh, I'd be completely on board with that. Or literally. <gasps> I am so guilty of saying both of those literally all the time. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, No, I. everyone is. Because once you start saying literally, it's literally impossible to stop. <laughs> it's such a nice word to say as well. Literally. <laughs> Okay, I'm going to uh, I'm going to choose uh, a, a controversial one. I would ban any extreme variation in jeans leg width. <laughs> Just the older I get, the more I get tired of the endless resurgence of bell-bottom jeans or stretched jeans. These things are tried every ten years. They always look rubbish. They are a blight in the environment. Now stop it. Jeans should move from drain pipe width at minimum to bootleg at maximum. Anything outside this should attract a fine. <laughs> um, and so, Alex, we need to know, what are your what is your preferred cut of jean? Uh, pretty pretty mid middle of the road, to be honest. Do you wear a centrist dad's cut of jean? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> No, no, I, I have to tell you, the centrist dad is not defined by the width of the leg, it's defined by the height of the waist. We, we will discuss this some other time. That brings us to the end of this week's bunker, which means it's now time for the panel's escape routes. What other films, TV shows, music, books or activities that have provided our panellists with a soothing respite from the news? Very quickly, Aisha, what is yours? Well, I've been watching lots of things because I've been ill. Um, so I'll pick two things. Absolute trashy, uh, Love is Blind 2 <laughs> Look, I've had COVID. Don't judge me. I just need to stop. I'm not judging you. I'm not Very judging you. I'm, I'm writing it down on the list. It's so good. I mean, it's so bad. It's so good. And then I've just been watching this thing on BBC iPlayer called Moods. And it kind of fits into what Yasmin was saying about social media it's all about the dark sides of becoming an influencer and it's absolutely brilliant like if you enjoyed I may destroy you I think you'll really enjoy this it's really brilliantly acted uh, and, and written and it's very good very dark though very good Yasmin what about you 
So I I just finished watching um, a Netflix um, documentary called The Bad Vegan, which falls into what appears to be a, a kind of new um, sort of, uh, oh, what's the word? Uh, category, I guess, for Netflix, which is like woman gets conned. By oh, the, like the like the Tinder swindler. Exactly, like that, except this time it follows um, a pretty high-profile um, businesswoman who, who runs this, this very famous um, vegan restaurant. It was kind of ahead of its time in New York City. Um, and, yeah, I think he, like, defrauds her of millions of dollars. And it's – I'm still in the middle of it. I haven't finished it yet. Sorry, so I said I finished it. I just watched a lot of it. I haven't finished it yet. But right, it's right. so upsetting. And it's kind of just goes to show like just how I know you, you kind of watch those things and you almost think I could never fall for that. Like, why are these people being so ridiculous? <laughs> but then you just kind of realize like how crazy manipulative some people could be. And um, mm. yeah, it, this really seems to be Netflix's new niche. And it just kind of makes you wonder, God, like how many stories are there? like this that we just haven't heard of because i think at this rate i've watched maybe two on netflix a tinder swindler and then another um this one was actually one i can't remember what it's called now it was based in britain of of these women getting defrauded by these con artists and it's yeah really really terrible but um really fascinating i, I would recommend it though it's kind of enraging but if you're into that then go all in very good we, we know we'd like enraging stuff uh, how about you mark will you will you drag us up from the from the <laughs> Netflix morass in in which we have sunk. Two words, Buster Keaton. At the end of every day, I go online to YouTube and I watch one of the movies from the teens or the 20s and just captivated by his use of space, feeling using the camera the way it was supposed to be uh, used, timeless humor, his amazing acrobatic feats. It just enthralls me and makes a, a sort of a promise for another better age yet to come. Oh, what a wonderful recommendation. I like that very much. Buster Keaton on uh, on YouTube. That's brilliant. My distraction has been that I've had a family visit for the first time in two years since this mess become. And yeah. it's uh, driven home to me just how traumatic this period has been for families like mine who are, who are scattered across various borders, um, you know, because trying to coordinate the rules here with the rules there and whether they will be the same by the time you return, the risk was just too high. And so uh, we've all ended up quite isolated and being able to give my nephew a massive hug um, was just the most amazing tonic. And that's the end of this week's bunker. Thanks to Aisha Hazarika. Thank you very much. To Yasmin Serhan. Thank you. And to our very special guest, Dr. Mark Berenson. Thank you. We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and the full-length show this time next week. And don't forget a new episode of The Culture Bunker every Saturday. Remember, if you like this podcast, please support us on the funding platform Patreon. You will get early episodes, exclusive content, merchandise, and all kinds of extras. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. Backers also get a shout-out at the end of the podcast. And here are some now. Hello and many thanks from me to Bernard Sewer, Paul Runtz and Vera Tiona. Best wishes from me to Kola Balgan, Victoria Hart, 
and Nata Abel. And it's a big thanks from me to Greg Bailey, Nick Bailey, and Alexandra Rowe. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. The Bunker was like literally presented by Alexandreou with Aisha Hazarika and Yasmin Serhan. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis. And the producers were Jacob Archbold, Yelna Sofronievich, and me, Alex Reese. Music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is literally a Podmasters production. Hold up. 